tonight since I pastored 30 years ago when I began when I was 10. <laughs> Just kidding. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word tonight, and we pray that you will bless us, teach us, edify us, strengthen us, and we thank you for it. Can you pray a prayer, church? Say, Lord, speak to my own heart and change me by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him you're going to be blessed tonight. Now, I told you, I try to pick the uh, questions that I think are most universally experienced by the church. And so uh, here we go. This is probably going to be the last week we do the questions. Um, well, you're going to have to give me some more questions then. Go to the connection point afterwards and we'll, I can answer questions all year. So just let me know. Okay. Now here's the first one. Why does it seem like so often my prayers aren't answered? How many of you have ever wondered that? Seriously. Okay. Why, why are my prayers not answered? Now, let me give you an answer to that. Prayers go unanswered for primarily three reasons. One is a timing issue. The timing is wrong. The timing is not right. Second, God has another plan. And third, we're praying amiss. Now, let me just uh, take those one at a time and, and go into them because we really need to understand this. You know, a lot of people get very discouraged with Christianity, with God, and walk away from the church and walk away from prayer when they have major prayers that are not answered because they don't understand. But the Bible will always answer your perplexities and questions if you give it time and if you research it. So let's deal with the timing issue. God answers prayers in three ways. Yes, no, or wait. And sometimes I kid around and say, he also says, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> but, all right, three ways. Yes, no, or wait. And you're not going to get any other answer from God than those three. Okay? Now, sometimes we assume God is not answering our prayer when he has said, wait. Because whether or not you know it, when you pray, you have within your heart an expectation that he's going to do it in a certain time period. Amen. You've got a little clock ticking in, in your soul. And when God doesn't answer according to your calendar, then you say, well, he's not answering me. But let me give you some information your church tonight. Listen, your ways are not God's ways. His ways are not your ways. Rarely is his timing my timing. I will, listen, some of the things I'm experiencing now, I would have released on me 30 years ago. But God had a timing. Okay? God has a timing. He is an exquisitely time-focused God. It says in the fullness of time, he sent his son. Okay? So he's a, he's a God of timing. So I want you to listen to the words of Habakkuk 2, verse 3. For the vision is yet for an appointed what? Notice the time is appointed. It's appointed by God. But at the end, it will speak. It will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Now, notice here. He's telling us that God's the appointer of the timing in which every purpose in our life is fulfilled. Ecclesiastes 3.1, what does it say? There is a time for everything under heaven, a, a time for every sea, a time and a season for every purpose of God. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose. So he's the appointer of the timing. But when it's his will, it's going to come. It's just in the oven. God's cooking something up. And he's not ready to do it today. He's going to do it later. Okay? Jesus once told his disciples, and I love this. He said, you know, I've got so much more to say to you, but you can't handle it now. You'll handle it later. But there's things I want to tell you that I can't do. I can't tell you now because you can't handle it. And, and let me just take this a little further. There's things that God would, will do in your life and mine later, but if he did it now, we couldn't handle it. We couldn't handle it. 
So some of the things we're asking God to do, uh, to do take preparation and maturing before we can receive it. When I was raising my children, Jeremy, when he was the, yay high, asked me for a shotgun. Because we were living in East Texas, and I had a shotgun, and I shot the shotgun. He saw it, thought it was cool, said, can I have a shotgun? I said, you know, someday, but not today. And I gave him a BB gun. I gave him what he could handle. And that's the way God is with us. He's not going to give you what you can't handle. Okay? Now, while we wait, God is preparing the answer for us and us for the answer. So your unanswered prayer may be a timing issue. It may be. That may be the issue. That may be why it's currently unanswered. Now, second, the problem can be that we're praying amiss. James writes in chapter 4, verse 3, When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Okay? For instance, let me give you an example. you got a person who prays that God will make them rich. Okay, Lord, if you answer prayer, then here's my prayer. Like God's a genie in a bottle. Okay? Uh, here's my prayer. that You'll make me rich. Since you answer prayer, that's what I want. And here's what they don't know. God cares way more about our motives than he does our actions or our words. Way more about our motives. I want you to know that. God checks out your motives. And so whatever you're asking for is more important to God as to why you want it as, than what you want. So he sees this person is not asking these things for the glory of God. He's not wanting to be rich for the glory of God, but that he may spend it on carnal pleasures. Who knows what he's going to do with that few million dollars once he gets it. God says, if I gave you that, it would ruin you. So the prayer goes unanswered. You understand what I'm saying here. You, you, you have to be sure that it's according to the will of God. And I'm going to look at that at the end of this. Now, thirdly, prayer goes unanswered because God has another plan. And man, have I run up against this one many times in my life. Sometimes our best prayers on our best day are less than God's best and highest plan. Okay? Paul said, we see through a glass darkly. So if we see through a glass darkly, a lot of the times, the best we can pray is not quite what God has in mind. Okay, So take Mary and Martha. Their best prayer in John chapter 11 was that Jesus would come and heal their ailing brother. That's the best they could think of. All right, Lazarus is sick. Lord, we're sending this messenger to you that you would run over here real quick, come from this, the town you're in, and dash over here and pray for him before he gets any sicker. That was the best they could think of. But God had another plan. It says the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, I want you to look what he said. This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. That is God's primary reason for answering prayer, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. According to John 15, God's primary motive and desire for answering your prayer in mind is the Father is glorified in the Son. Okay? Now, at first glance, what Jesus said, this sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God, doesn't make sense because Lazarus did die. But here's what Jesus was saying. He's not going to stay dead. He's going to die, but he's not going to stay dead. I've got a bigger plan, higher plan, deeper plan, wider plan. I've got a plan. Listen, the higher plan of God entailed the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, and those sisters could never have known or grasped this. Never. They never would have said, well, let's just wait till he dies, then go get Jesus to raise him up. Never, that would have never occurred to them. So God had a higher plan. Okay? And what it came down to is, okay, since he has not shown up when I thought he would and done what I thought he should, the way I thought he would, then I need to trust him because he's got a higher plan. And folks, that's so often what happens to us in our walk with God. 
We've got an expectation that he should do it this way, this way, this way, in this time, and this time, and this time. And when he doesn't do it, we get all offended and stumble and walk away. We need to go back, sometimes just drop back and punt and say, okay, since it hasn't happened the way I thought, then I'm just going to have to trust God to work out his plan. There have been times in my life, I've got to tell you, where I played, prayed earnestly for a certain thing many times, only to have it go unanswered. Let me give you an example. I prayed earnestly for years that God would open the door for me to go into full-time evangelism. I just knew I was going to be the next Billy Graham. I don't say that puffed up. I'm saying I dared to dream big. And I so admired him when I was a young Christian. I just wanted to be like him. So, Lord, open the door. Let me go tear up the world with the gospel. I got my business cards all made up, and I got recommendations from some big-name preachers and sent them all out, and nothing. (laughs) Aside from a few extended revivals in other cities, this prayer never came to pass. But you know what? God had a higher plan. Number one, I would never, ever have liked traveling all the time. I hate flying. You hear my wife saying that's right? And here I was wanting a ministry that would put me in a jet every other day, and I hate flying, okay? And from the time that I was 18 years old on, all that I did was sit down with a group of people and teach the Bible to the same group over a very extended period of time. I was pastoring when I didn't know I was pastoring. I was pastoring when I was praying to go into evangelism. And so God had a bigger plan, higher plan, better plan for me. And I so appreciate that he let me pastor so that I can stay home and be here and do what I've done since I was 18. And now that I'm 40, I tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm still enjoying it. Amen. God lets me lie a little bit in front of you guys here on Wednesday nights, okay? So since I was 18, I've been doing this. Since I was 18, I've been doing this. My entire adult life, I've been doing this. My entire adult life. So God had a better plan. He shut one door so he could open up another. How many of you have ever thanked God for a shut door in retrospect? Thank God that he shut that door Instead of opening, even when you were trying to kick it open, he still didn't let you do it. And now in retrospect, you say, oh, thank you, Jesus. You did not. Because you recently saw that person you almost married. And you went, oh, oh, hi. Okay. Now, I see that this was God's other and better plan. And so as we say, when you don't understand God's hand, trust God's heart. Okay, so a timing issue, that can really be the, the problem, and, and keep that in mind. Trust God's timing, and just look at those three things we covered, and it'll help you. Now, the promise of God for all prayer is this. Let's read this together, 1 John five fourteen. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything, what? According to His will, He hears us. And it continues, and if we know that he hears us, we know we have the petitions we have requested of him. Okay? So when you're praying according to his will, the answer is always going to be either yes, and you're going to get it right then, or yes, but wait. Here's the next question. We're answering questions tonight. How can I know if something is God's will? Because sometimes it's so hard to tell. How many of you have ever really struggled to find God's will in something? I'm going to be honest with you tonight. Sometimes the hardest thing in the world to know and discern is God's will. It is really difficult sometimes. Do I go here? Do I go there? Do I take this job, that job, live here, live there, see this person, see that person, go into this career, that career? It's very, and and, and sometimes, most of the time, you've got to really pray over an extended period of time before you begin to discern the will of God. But let me give you something that will help you. The story's told of a particular harbor that was very dangerous for approaching ships due to dangerous rocks just below the surface. And there was a very narrow port of entry that was safe 
for an incoming ship. And so here's what they did. They, they erected three harbor lights. The captain of the incoming ship would know his approach was good if all three lights lined up and merged and became one. So the lights are all in a row, one, two, three. But if you're coming in at, at the wrong angle, you're going to see all three. But if you maneuver yourself where you're coming in just the way you should to avoid the dangerous rocks, those three lights would merge and become one. And then you knew you were coming in the right way and you could safely go into the harbor. Now, there are likewise three harbor lights of guidance that must all come together and agree for us to know something is God's will. His word his spirit's peace, and circumstances falling in line, or we would call a door opening. So there's the harbor light. Say with me, his word. That's number one. Numero uno is his word. Second, the peace of the spirit of God. Or we just say God's peace. His word, his peace, and his circumstances. When something is God's will, the circumstances open up for you. And I'm going to show you that in just a moment now. So when those three are all there, in something you're praying about, and they are all agreeing and merging as one, then you can rest assured you're more than likely in the will of God in the decision you're making. Now, let me just talk about the word first, because the word is first. God will never, ever lead us contrary to his clearly written word. Everybody say with me, never. never. I mean, never. I don't care what your situation is how you feel, what it looks like, how convincing the circumstances might be. If the decision you're making cannot receive the amen of God's word, you don't even need to pray about it. You don't even need to pray about it. Because God's word, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. God's word is God's word. So if he ixnays something, then nothing is going to change his ixnay. Okay? Now, I see Christians all the time making decisions that the word cannot amen. And they always end up in pain, they always end up in regret, and they always end up with multiplied sorrows. Listen, Christians go against the word all the time thinking, well, I, th this situation is different. I'm different. Uh, nobody has experienced this kind of trial like me. So this, this that I'm thinking about doing, even though I know, yeah, I know there's a verse or two that's against it, but God will make an exception for me because I'm me. Listen, you're not all that. And God, listen carefully to me because here, here, here's how you get deceived. God will never make an exception for his word, ever. Amen. Thy word is truth, the Bible says. So just remember that. There's never an exception. You're not an exception. Your circumstances are not an exception. If the word okays it, then you can go to harbor light number two. But if the word doesn't okay it, you can stop right there. You're headed for the rocks. Notice how in the wilderness the devil continuously tried to get Jesus to do something contrary to God's word. That was the whole battle. The showdown in the wilderness was all about trying to get Jesus to break God's word. And Jesus always saw through it. Turn these stones into bread, said the devil. Jesus replied, man shall not live by bread alone. I will not misuse my power as God's son. Jump off the pinnacle of this temple, Satan said to Jesus. The Lord said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You're wrong, devil. You're misinterpreting the word. And it was the word that delivered Jesus out of the wilderness. It was the word that finally made the devil leave until an opportune time. It was the word that defeated the devil. And it'll be the word that defeats the devil in your life and mine. That's why you ought to know that word. You better know that word, okay? Jesus refused to be lured out of the dead center of God's written word, and that has to be our stance. I'm a word man. 
And I want a word church, among other things. I want a word church that our final authority is the word. Our final source of truth is the word. It's not the way we think or feel or what somebody in the world says. Our final source and ultimate source of truth is the word. And everything we believe and the way we live springs from that word. And that's it. And that's why God gave the word for instruction in righteousness, correction, reproof, and so on and so forth. So it's all about the word. Now, second, if the word is fine with what you're thinking about doing, a direction you're headed, then the peace of the Holy Spirit will always accompany a decision made in God's will. Now, let me say that again. Inside of you is the Holy Spirit. You're a child of God. And that Holy Spirit, let me show you a verse here. Paul wrote, let's read this together. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, say with me, pray about it. That's what he's saying. Pray about it. Whatever you're uptight about, wondering about, confused about, perplexed about, vexed about, pray about it. Okay, now it goes on. And read with me, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The word guard there is very interesting. It's like an umpire. It's like there's an umpire in your heart. Now, you know the purpose of the the, the home base umpire standing behind the batter, and here's the pitcher, and the pitcher throws a pitch. And that umpire will either say, strike or ball. Meaning in or out, good or bad. He's telling us the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us when something comes our way, a decision, a direction, something that matters in our life, that the Spirit of God inside of us is like an umpire. He either says good or bad. Right or wrong, in or out. And he does it by either giving you his peace or withdrawing his peace. So that something can look completely right, but you can't figure out why you just can't seem to have peace. You can't sleep. You can't get it off your mind. You're restless. There, there's something you can't rest. There's something inside of you that is troubled. You can't see anything out here. There's no, nothing out here necessarily that tells you what you're about to do is wrong. It may not even be wrong, as I'm going to show you in a moment. But nevertheless, you don't have inner peace about it. That's the umpire who knows the will of God for your life. Good or bad, in or out, right or wrong. So if you're wanting to go in a direction, you're wondering and you're praying about guidance, and even though the word in general terms may be okay with what you're doing, yet the Spirit of God, let me show you. We see in the book of Acts that two different times in a row, Paul and Silas wanted to preach the gospel in a certain area, and they lost their peace about it. Now, can you say with me, preaching the gospel is a good thing? They were commanded to preach the gospel. But look what happened. They went to Phrygia and then went on through the region of Galatia. And their plan was to turn west into Asia province. But read it with me. The Holy Spirit blocked that route. There wasn't a a physical stop sign there. There wasn't a road guard. The Spirit of God in them blocked them. How did he do it? The Bible doesn't tell us that he spoke. So we have to assume he took his peace away because the same person that experienced this wrote Philippians 4, 6, and 7, the peace of God will rule your heart. So the Lord removed his peace, and they they could not go into an area. Now, look, it happened again. So they turned, and they said, well, let's try Mysia and go through north through Bithynia. But look what it says. The Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them go there either. Wow. Twice. These men on fire for God wanted to preach the gospel, but the Holy Spirit took away his peace and wouldn't let them do it. He withdrew his peace. Now, church, please understand the same spirit of God that was in them is in you. You have the spirit of God in you. And and when you lose peace about something, now I know I'm in the dark as far as the camera goes. What an illustration. You can walk in the light or you can walk in the dark. Okay. 
I felt myself go in the shadows just then. Now watch this. The same spirit that is in them saying, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there, even though it was a good thing, can say to you also, don't, and withdraw his peace. I've never been able to move forward in anything I was praying about in the will of God when I lost his peace. It's a guarantee he will be the umpire. So we see that even when they were wanting to do a good thing, it wasn't within the framework of God's will. You know, you're single, and you meet someone, and man, you like them. And you see in the Bible, he that finds a wife finds a good thing. So the Bible's not stopping you. The Bible talks about, and I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but the, the, the marriage being a good thing. And so you say, all right, hallelujah, I got the amen of the word of God. But man, the more you get into that relationship, the more you're losing your peace. You rebuke the devil, you fast, you pray, you bind, you loose, you name it, you claim it, you blab it, you grab it. You say, you know, I like this person, this is just me, I'm just uptight or something. But, but no matter what you do, you lose your peace. And it's getting worse. My advice to you is you listen to the Holy Spirit inside of you and back off and pray. Because even though you got the amen of the word of God, you don't have the umpire telling you, go ahead. And there's a reason. I don't know what the reason is, but he knows. Preaching the gospel is a good thing. The Spirit prevented them at that time. So if you're looking at making a decision, and the further you get into it, the more troubled, tight, and unpeaceful you feel, pull back and ask God to clarify His will. And He will. He will clarify His will. And if He's taking His peace away, don't keep going. Finally, circumstances or an open door will line up. The right doors will open when it's God's will. Every time, God will open the door. In John's revelation, here's what Jesus says about himself. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, and what he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. What is Jesus doing? He's identifying himself as the way maker, as the door opener and the door shutter. And if he shuts, don't try to kick it open. And if he opens it, you better go through it. Okay? What he opens, nobody can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. When something is God's will, it is his job to open the necessary doors. And he will. He will. So Paul wrote, look what Paul said. I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. Read this with me, everybody, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Why was he staying in Ephesus until Pentecost? Because God had opened up a door. And he said, when God opens up a door for me, I'm going through it. No matter if there's a lot of adversity, I'm still going to go through it. So there you have Jesus as the door opener, the opportunity maker. He's saying, I can tell God is leading me this way because of the doors he's opened. So when God's word, God's peace, and God's door all come together and agree, you can pretty much bank on it being God's guidance. One last sifter. I didn't put it up here, but it's a good one. Ask people around you what they think about where you're headed. People who know you. Ask them. Pastors friends, parents, people who really know you well and walk with God. Ask them what they think about where you're going. That's free. That's not up there. Okay, here we go. We're answering questions tonight. Here's a big one. Question. My husband is an unbeliever. He won't come to church with me. He won't pray with me, and I can't talk to him about the Lord. Does that give me grounds to leave? No. Let's move on. No, no, I'm kidding. That's tough. That's a trial. If you're married and your spouse doesn't walk with God, doesn't come to church with you, you can't share with them the blessings and, uh, and the things of God that you're experiencing, the joy, the answer prayer, the thrill of walking with Jesus, and you go home just to a stone wall, that's a trial. So let me show you what the Word says about it. 
No, you should not leave according to the Word of God. Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Now, again, I'm not talking about abuse. If you're being hit or verbally abused to the point that it is wrecking you, destroying you, then you've got to, you're, I'm, I'm not, this is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about living with an unbeliever, and let's just leave it there, okay? If a Christian has a wife, this is what Paul wrote. If a Christian has a wife who is not a Christian, but she wants to stay with him anyway, he must not leave her or divorce her. Now, I didn't say that. Jesus did. The Bible did. Okay? He goes on in verse 13, 1 Corinthians 7. And if a Christian woman has a husband who isn't a Christian, but he wants her to stay with him, she must not leave him. Now look at verse 14. Here's his reason. For perhaps the husband who isn't a Christian may become a Christian with the help of his Christian wife. And the wife who isn't a Christian may become a Christian with the help of her Christian husband. Operative word there is may, might. That's why I tell people if you're dating somebody and they're not a believer and you're thinking I'm just going to get them saved because of our deep love for each other and I'm going to win them over because we have such a romance, I say to you, you're dreaming. You're taking a huge risk because he said may. Now, I didn't put it here, but he went on to say, but if the unbeliever wants to leave, let them leave. For you are not under bondage in such cases, for God has called us to peace. So if that unbeliever wants to boogie, wants to get out, then you say, okay. If they say, I can't take this Jesus stuff, I don't want to live with you, I'm so tired of this, and you know, I'm done with this, and they leave, then do, bye. And you're not under bondage. That's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7. But if they want you to stay, you stay. Now, here, look more at his reasoning. Otherwise, if the family separates, the children might never come to know the Lord. Whereas a united family may, in God's plan, result in the children's salvation. Now, I want you to note with me something here. In Western society, it's all about us, me, myself, and I. My wants, my needs, my rights. I've got rights for this and that and the other, and we're all about rights. We're choking to death on rights. But in God's kingdom, it's often about others and not our rights. Now, follow me carefully. And this is real hard for Western people to swallow because we are surrounded by selfish narcissists and sociopaths, literally. But watch this. Notice that while the saved spouse here wants out, the Scriptures are looking at the children and the lost spouse. So in other words, in the Scriptures, it's not all about you. It's about them. Everybody say amen or oh me. Okay? It's not about you. Because that's the way the kingdom of God thinks. The kingdom of God is all about doing for others, dying to yourself, sacrificing, (laughs) things that you never hear preached in the Western culture anymore. Just just let me put on the internet this week that this this Sunday, I'm going to be preaching on dying to yourself. And and watch how the empty chairs show up. Because we don't want to hear about dying to myself. I want God to make me rich. I want God to make me happy. I want God to do all these things for me. And, and we totally misinterpret Christianity. He's saying here, if you leave, your children who, who know that you're a professing Christian may connect dots and say, well, you know what? They say that they follow this forgiving Jesus, but they didn't forgive. And they left. They walked away. And so the Bible is insinuating that that divorce can affect the children as far as faith goes. Now, I don't want you to be condemned. Many of you in here have been through the tragedy of a divorce. I'm not condemning you because God's grace is way bigger than our mistakes. But I can't disregard the principle that's in the Word either as a teacher, okay? 
And then maybe the lost spouse will be saved by your witness. Read 1 Peter 3, ladies, about how to behave towards a lost husband and maybe hopes of winning them. So the Bible has in mind others while we have in mind ourselves all the time. Let me show you how Paul lived. Uh, Well, let me give you a principle first. God's will may and often does supersede your comfort. I want you to say that with me because you didn't like that one. Are you ready? God's will may supersede my comfort. God's way more concerned about your spiritual growth than he is your comfort. God didn't buy you a lazy boy when you got saved. God gave you a cross. Pick up your cross, not your lazy boy. And follow me. And I'm not here to make you comfortable. I'm here to make you like Jesus. And to make us like Jesus, we're often, often made uncomfortable. Amen, Pastor Jeff. That's good teaching. I'm going to get this CD tonight. All right. And we don't like to hear this, do we? But it's it's the truth. God will inconvenience us a lot to get Jesus formed in us. Now, look what Paul told the Philippian church. And he's being very honest here. Sometimes I want to live, and at other times I don't, for I want to go be with Jesus. How much happier I would be there than here. You hear, Paul? But the fact is, I can be of more help to who? To you, to them, to the church, by staying. He says, I I want to get out of here. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I'd rather go be with Jesus and stick around here dealing with all you church folks. But he says, look what he goes on to say, but I am still needed down here. And so I feel certain I will be staying on earth a little longer. Read the last part with me. Here's why. To help you grow and become happy in your faith. Now let me ask you a question. Was he willing to be inconvenienced so that others could be reached? That's the spirit of 1 Corinthians 7 and staying in a marriage with a lost spouse and doing a lot of things in the Christian faith. That's the end of that. I'm going to the next question. (laughs) How many of you understood that last one? Come on. It's real quiet in here. You you know why you're so shocked by this? Because you rarely hear this kind of thing taught. And I'm not stroking myself here. I'm, I'm not. I'm just telling you, it's a shame. This, this should be taught all the time. So Christians would not always be fighting against God who says to them, look, I want you to stick this out for their sake. It's not all about you and your comfort. It's called sacrifice. Thank God Jesus thought this way. He said, I could have called 12 legions of angels and gotten out of here. But I knew why I came. I came to die on a cross for the sins of mankind. So I'm going to sacrifice my life for your sakes. Thank God he thought this way. Now, it says, let this same mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So can you say with me, it's not all about me. It's about others. Now, here's the next question. Boy, I'm just going deeper here. If me and my boyfriend love each other and decide to live together, can't we just make a covenant between us and God without getting a piece of paper? Aren't we married in God's eyes? Now, you would be amazed how people, many people who are in church don't understand this. And I'm never going to mock them, never going to make fun of them, because, listen, I had all kinds of things need to be straightened out in my thinking that I got from the world. This is worldly thinking. Let me ask the question. In the United States, living together instead of marrying has become the norm for couples. Can you believe it? Half of young adults aged 20 to 40. Now, how many? Half are cohabiting instead of getting married. And we wonder why we need revival. Cohabitation has increased nearly 1,000% since 1980. And the marriage rate has dropped more than 40% since 1960. 
There are several myths about cohabitation, or what we affectionately call shacking up, that fuel this phenomenon. Where does this thinking come from? Let me show you three myths about cohabitation. First, living together is a good way to test the water. I want to see if we get along. Let's see if we get along. Let's see how things work out for a year or two. Many couples say that they want to live together to see if they're compatible. You don't need to live together to find out if you're compatible. Just see them regularly for about a year. You'll find out real quick, within six months, if you're compatible. Not realizing, are you ready, that cohabitation is more a preparation for divorce than a way to strengthen the likelihood of a successful marriage. The divorce rates of women who cohabit are nearly 80% higher than those who don't. These are undeniable stats, okay? You can't argue with numbers. In fact, studies indicate that cohabiting couples have lower marital quality and increased risk of divorce. Further, cohabiting relationships tend to be fragile and relatively short in duration. Less than half of cohabiting relationships last five or more years. Typically, they last about 18 months. You know why? Because there's no pressure to stay together. You're not in a legal agreement, so you have a few fights. You say, you know what? It's been real. God bless you. See you later. We'll stay friends. Why, why fight to save it if you're not legally bound? If there's no consequences? You just leave. It's easy, and it's cowardly. Myth number two, couples don't really need that piece of paper. A major problem with cohabitation is that it's a tentative agreement that lacks stability. And people say, Pastor Jeff, we stood in the middle of the living room and said, to God, holding hands, we commit ourselves to each other for life. Thank you, God, for marrying us. That didn't do it. You're not married. But we love each other. You're still not married. But I mean, I love this person like I've never loved anybody else in my life, for now. But you're still not married. Well, who are you to say? I'm not. Jesus said. I'm going to get to that. Such relationships cohabiting contribute little to those inside and certainly little to those outside of the arrangement because it's so easily broken. Not the partners, not the children, not the community, nor the society. Nobody can depend on that relationship. You think children who watch a cohabiting relationship have confidence it's going to make it? They're not as dumb as you think. Sometimes couples choose to live together as a substitute for marriage, indicating that in case the relationship goes sour, they can avoid the trouble, expense, and emotional trauma of a divorce. With such a weak bond, let me ask you, between those two parties, that's a weak bond. It's just an agreement. There is little likelihood they will work through their problems or they'll maintain the relationship under pressure. They're not going to do it. They don't have to. They don't have to. So it gets, it gets hot, it gets troubled, and you start having fights, they say, you know what, let's move on. And they think no one's the better for it or the worse for it, but not true. So it can't be depended on. Here's myth number three. Cohabiting relationships usually lead to marriage. If we move in together, we know we're going to stay in love. We're just kind of testing the waters, but we'll end up married. During the 1970s, about 60% of cohabiting couples married each other within three years. Did you catch that? Less than half. But this proportion has since declined to less than 40%. While women today still tend to expect that cohabitation will lead to marriage, numerous studies of college students have found that men typically cohabit simply because it's convenient. I can have the goods without a commitment. In fact, there's general agreement among scholars that living together before marriage puts women at a distinct disadvantage in terms of power. A college professor, I couldn't believe this. Well, yes, I could. College professor 
described a survey that he conducted over a period of years in his marriage classes. He asked guys who were living with a girl, point blank, are you going to marry that girl you're living with? He asked the guys. The overwhelming response was no. But when they asked the girls if they were going to marry the guy they were living with, their response was, oh, yes, we love each other, and we're just learning how to be together. It's just so wonderful. Excuse me while I play my violin. Notice the difference. The guys, no way. The girl, oh, of course. He loves me. I totally believe that study. The Bible calls cohabitation sin. We should note above everything else that Jesus placed his stamp of approval on marriage, not cohabitation. Where did he do his first uh, miracle? It was at a wedding. He put his seal of approval. First miracle out of the hat was at a wedding. Now, Jesus said, to those asking him about marriage. He said, don't you read the Bible? Sometimes I want to ask Christians that. Don't you read the scriptures? In them it is written. Now he's referring back to Moses and Genesis, all the way back to the book of Genesis. In them it is written that at the beginning God created man and woman, and that a man should leave his father and mother and be forever united to his wife. Now, the homosexual movement now says Jesus never condemned homosexuality, never said anything against it. Oh, yes, he did, right there. Amen. He said, now, I was talking to Kathy on the way here to uh, church, and I was telling her, I said, you know, um, the only reason I talk about the homosexual issue is because they have picked the fight. Amen. In 30 years of preaching, teaching, I never had to dedicate a whole message to homosexuality, but I feel I've got to salt and pepper some messages with, with truth because we're under such a bombardment, such an incredible propaganda campaign. And, and see, they say, well, Jesus never talked against them. Yes, he did. He said, a man, man, shall leave his father and mother, man and woman, and be joined to his wife, woman, and the two shall become one flesh. Man and man, woman and woman, can't become one flesh. That's not how we were created. Okay? So, all of this Jesus never talked about. It. He did by implication. Yes, he did. The two shall become one. No longer two, but one, Jesus went on to say. And no man may divorce what God has joined together. So Paul advised marriage to avoid sexual sin. Leaving Jesus and what he said about marriage to Paul. He said, you need to marry to avoid sexual sin. If you can't handle being single, then get married. He said, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So if cohabiting is not sin, then what is it? And what is fornication? Fornication is any sexual activity with another outside of marriage. That's what fornication is. Lest what in the world does, the, does it mean? When Paul said, the body is not for fornication, and fornication is not for the body. What was he talking about? If cohabitation was good in God's eyes, then what is fornication? I mean, we're under so much propaganda, folks, especially with sexual stuff. It's everywhere. Principle, love does not sanctify or nullify sin. Well, we love each other. And because we love each other, when we have the urge to merge, we just go with it. Because we love each other. I want you to say with me, love does not sanctify or nullify sin. Love doesn't make wrong right. Amen. Well, this is going to be good on radio. 
This is why the message of homosexual community is erroneous. We love each other, and we're in a monogamous relationship, so God approves of what we're doing. Always remember this. Monogamy doesn't make wrong right. So you've been with the same person five years. If you're not married, but you're sexually involved, it's still wrong. If I'm hungry and steal, I've still stolen. If I'm angry and kill, I've still broken the commandment. If I say I love somebody and involve myself sexually outside of marriage, it's still wrong. Besides, always remember, true love will wait. Okay? How am I doing, Kathy? Huh? Okie dokie, she said. I think I'm in trouble. No. So we advise that if you're cohabiting, this is what our church would counsel you. If you're cohabiting, either end it and move on or marry, and that as soon as possible. Listen, if that guy you're cohabiting with, lady, if he loved you, he'd do the right thing and marry you. Okay? Obeying the word of God always brings blessing and God's peace. Oh, I'm so glad I'm done. Let's stand up together. (laughs) How many of you are glad you came to church tonight? All right. (laughs) Now, I'll do more questions if you get me more. So be thinking. If you want to send them to me by email or go to the connection point and grab the question deal. And you give me some more, I'll do it again next week. But wasn't that fun tonight? Even though, how many of you said, my toes are sore? Uh Uh-huh. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. It's real. It's true. Lord, we're just teaching what it says. Help us, Lord, to glorify you in this world, even though it is sometimes very difficult to come into line with your word how our flesh will fight coming in line with your word. But even so, Lord, we know that your word is for our safety. So we ask you, Lord, to help us to glorify you in our life. Can you breathe that prayer tonight, church? Let's lift our hands to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to pick up that cross and die to myself and live for you. In Jesus' name, how great is our God.